Welcome to the village. My name is Eric. It's good to see all of you here today. We are in a series on the Apostles' Creed, and the Apostles' Creed is our statement of belief as a community. It's the thing that we center ourselves around, and so we thought it would be important to look at it and kind of play with it, tease it out, explain it, help us to understand why we say it every other week as a community. Now, what we've been saying is that the Apostles' Creed has a few distinctives that hold us together, or there's some reasons why we say it that um, are important to us as a community. Number one, it's reorienting to us. Every time we say it, it brings us back to what we believe instead of drifting off into other areas. It's something that continually is reorienting us as we have all of this information from inside and outside of our communities bombarding us as we walk through our everyday life. Number two, it's simple. It really is a simple explanation of our faith in Jesus. It it tells us what our basic beliefs are. It reminds us of the core of who we are and why we do what we do. Number three is that it connects us to one another. It is a connecting force. And that it, when we say, I believe, and we're sitting next to each other, and we're standing up and proclaiming what we believe, it connects us. If I say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and you say it, it connects us together. But not only does it connect us together in this little village, it connects us together out in the, in the larger city of Tucson with people who are proclaiming the creed, and then with people outside of Tucson and through the world. It connects us to a gigantic following of Jesus. And not only does it connect us to that, it connects us to the ancient proclamation of the Apostles' Creed in that for 1,800 years or so, people have been saying the Apostles' Creed. And the church fathers find this creed to be essential to who we are. So we're connected to the church through time. So it's a connecting force. Not only that, though, it's a convicting force. As we read the Apostles' Creed, we must wrestle with what it says. That it talks about being Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. It talks about God being our creator. It talks about judgment and the forgiveness of sins. We have to, it, it convicts us. It, it should disrupt us. And kind of lumping all that together, really what the Apostle Creed does is it is a anchor. It's just something in our faith that we can anchor ourselves to, proclaim what we believe, and it helps us not to drift, to drift away from our salvation and to drift away from what is important. Now last week, Rod talked about the part of the Apostles' Creed that says that Jesus ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And so this week, we are continuing that statement and where it says, and he shall come to judge the living and the dead, which serves as an interesting pivoting point within the creed because up to this point, we've been talking about what happened in the past and all of a sudden the creed switches to talk about what's going to happen in the future. And the Apostles' Creed makes the statement that Jesus is going to return and that Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. And so the first thing I want to talk about tonight is Jesus returning. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on Jesus returning, but I want to talk a little bit 
about what Paul has to say about the return of Jesus out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 18, or verses 13 through 18. So let me read these to you and, and then try to explain just a little bit of what's happening here. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him, according to the Lord's own word. We will tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together, and that's the the phrase I want you to note, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so... We will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, what he's saying is that in the midst of living out life as followers of Jesus, hoping for the return of Jesus, the community is beginning to feel disrupted by death and the longing to be out of this world. And yet what Paul is saying is, Jesus is coming, and I want to root you in the present. I want to give you courage in the present. And so let me tell you kind of the story that you're part of. Don't worry about those who have passed on because Jesus died and he rose from the dead, and we are going to see them. But he kind of expands it with this word that there's going to be a time when all of us will be caught up. That there's this catching up with Jesus. And the language here is often used to talk about how we, as a community, are to engage an incoming king. And that as you hear that the king is coming, as you have heard that he's coming, you go out and you prepare the roads so that he, you get, you put all the brigands in jail. You, you deal with what's causing travel to be difficult, so that when the trumpets blow, you hear the trumpets blow, you know the king is coming, the whole town will come out to meet the king. And then they will get caught up with the king, and as the king comes into the city, you will not be able to tell the difference between the king, its angels, and the people who've gone, uh, the king's army, and the people who've gone out to meet him. And it's the same idea as Jesus comes with his angels, with the trumpet blasts, is that you and I are working on developing the kingdom of God, wrestling together in the the mire of what we call this world to announce Jesus as king. And when we hear the trumpet, we go out to meet him and we come in to the city with him. Let me give you an example of this in just illustrating it and talking about my son. Now my son lives in a home where there are people who come over to eat a lot. A lot of those people have kids his own age. And so he'll always ask me, who's coming over for dinner? And I'll say, I don't know, or I'll tell him. And what he'll do is he'll strap on his saxophone and he'll head out into the street 
waiting for them to come home. Come to our house for dinner. And he'll play out there until they come. He wants to meet them and usher them in. And if I gave him permission, he would travel up Van Buren, which intersects with um, Pima, and wait for them. And as soon as they turned onto Van Buren off of Pima to head to our house, he would get in their car and he would be caught up with them and he would usher them into our home. And that's kind of the picture. That What Paul is saying is the journey we are on is really the journey of Elliot to strap on our saxophone and prepare the way for the coming king. He's preparing the way for the coming guest. And so the return of Jesus is an exciting thing because it is a family event because the God of the universe is coming to dwell with us and he's not going to leave. And we are to be with him forever. And so when we think about what we believe about the return of Jesus, we first have to begin with this idea that it is an exciting event. It is an event to look forward to, not to be terrified of. It is the event of reunion and joy. And yet, within the Apostles' Creed, there is something that's very clear. And that is that judgment is going to happen. That not only is Jesus going to return, but Jesus is going to return to judge the living and the dead. And you and I, I think, have a problem with judgment. Now, maybe we might call judgment condemnation, but the reality is is that we all judge. We all judge. We're always making judgments because judgment is an opinion about someone followed by an action of some sort or a, or a set of beliefs, right? There's this, there's an opinion and some kind of result based on that opinion on how we relate to people or what we're going to do. And one of the things we like to say is, don't judge me. Don't judge me. In fact, If we're Christians, we often use chapter 7 of Matthew as an excuse not to have people, or a way of telling people not to judge us. Let me read Matthew chapter 7 to you, the first few verses. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured out to you. Now, yes, there's a, there's an idea of the, this is really built into the action, right? You make a, you have an opinion of somebody, and then you move and you act on that opinion. Now, listen to how he kind of plays this out. Verse three. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brothers, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So there's this sense that you and I don't actually have right opinions about people. And in fact, what we do know as we're, we're kind of, that what this, this, uh, passage kind of stirs up really is that there is something wrong with all of us we know that there's something wrong with all of us and we're kind of terrified of that in fact hebrews 4:13 says that there isn't any hiding 
The writer of Hebrews says that God can see everything. And that is terrifying to us because it's bad enough having someone else make a judgment of us and act on that judgment. It's pretty difficult to have the God of the universe saying, whoa, I can see you. It's terrifying, right? I always, I grew up in the church and I had this feeling that, man, my whole life is just going to be on movie screens, played before everybody. It's exposing. But Jesus, I mean, the writer of Hebrews is clear that in, in Hebrews 9.27, he basically says that it's appointed once for man to live and once for man to die and for once for man to be judged. And, and that verse goes on to talk about Christ having died once for sin. But, but this part of the verse really indicates, I mean, it's reality for all of us. We get one life and one death and then judgment. And we know regardless of how we feel about God or what we believe about God, that there's something wrong with us and that death itself um, is unknown. And we're all pretty sure that, you know, when we have those dark nights of the soul, that, that it's not it. We don't just go into some unconscious. We know that death presents something and it's terrifying to us. And, as followers of Jesus, we know that there is a cost for something we call sin, which is the missing of the mark. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. But the wages, the wages of sin is death. There is a cost. There is a reason for us to be judged. So when it says, when we say, and I, and we, that we believe that Jesus is going to return, and we believe that he's going to judge the living and the dead, what we're saying is, that that is something that's okay with us, and that we believe that, that God is going to, Jesus is going to judge us with a right opinion, followed by a right action. Right? We, we have, we have made that extremely clear when we make the proclamation that he's going to return and judge the living and the dead. Now, as we talk about judgment, Judgment really actually, especially when we're talking about Jesus judging us, touches on a very long um, theme within his human history, and one that's kind of brought out in Scripture. And that is this idea of being cast out of something. That there's this casting out. And, and there are three basic things within Scripture, or ideas, people, that are cast out. Number one, the narrative of Scripture starts with Satan being cast out. Satan is cast out. Now, Satan, in the beginning of, of the story, is the angel of light and is in the kingdom of heaven. Now, you, I'm not going to go to these passages, uh, but I've listed them here. Revelation 7, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. They talk about Satan's story, but even as we read those, it's difficult to really understand what happens or how Satan is cast out or how Satan and God of the universe interact. But what we do know is that Satan makes a choice to rebel against God and he is cast from heaven to earth with a third of the angels. We know that. We can deduce that from these scriptures. If you want to look at them and talk to me more about them and discuss that, we can do that. But it's important for me to talk to you about the idea of holiness and the idea of glory. Okay? So, so first with holiness, 
Um, I've talked about it in the past, and what I've said to you is that holiness has three parts. Holiness is made up of, of God being sacred, of God being right, and of God being sane. Now, there's a whole lot of other things when it comes to dealing with holiness, but those three ideas are important for us to hang on to. That when we're saying God is holy, we are saying that God is sacred, God is right, and God is sane. Okay? And that's kind of a a big statement about the character of who God is. But the other thing we affirm in the Apostles' Creed is the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And within the Trinity, the weight of what we would call glory is felt. Now, glory is uh, uh, the weight of a personality, the weight of of goodness. Like we talk about um, when somebody who has a lot of charisma, they walk into the room, you basically can sense the energy change. But when we're talking about glory, I would argue that what we're talking about is relationship. What we're talking about is relationship. That within the Trinity, there is perfect relationship that is sacred, sane, and right. And when Satan rebels, what we said the opposite of holiness is, the opposite of holiness is that there is an insanity and a profanity and a wrongness. And that insanity, profanity, and wrongness, when coming up against the holiness and glory of God, it must be cast out. There is a literal repelling of Satan from heaven. And so, Satan is cast out. Now, God creates man and woman in his image in the garden to be his representatives on the earth. And what's interesting in all of that is that he allows this dragon, Satan, with whom he cast out, to be present in this garden. They, And he tells Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They disobey and they are moved and pushed in that way from the dragon, from Satan, the one cast out, and they rebel against God. And you can see this this meeting of rebellion and holiness and what happens kind of in Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 and following. And this is God talking to himself. It says, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, Knowing good and evil, he must be allowed to reach out, not allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been, had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim and flaming swords flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So man and woman are cast out because they have become insane, wrong, and profane. And something insane, profane, and wrong cannot be in relationship with the full weight of the holiness and glory of God, and so it is expelled and cast out of the Garden of Eden and into death. 
And so Satan is cast out. The man is cast out. And there is a deep relational problem between the image bearers of God, humanity, and God himself. We have unholy and holy. And we see from what we heard earlier from Romans that there is this consequence to that, and that is both spiritual and physical and emotional death. And really what it all is is a complete removal of the image of God. And so God himself moves to a place of being cast out. I want to read to you Isaiah 53. Verses 3 and 4. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. The idea here that Isaiah is prophesying about is Jesus having all of the sin of the world being put on him. Now, within the Old Testament, there is a concept called scapegoat. And you can read about this in Leviticus chapter 16, which is early on in the Old Testament, dealing with the Israelites and their story. And in that passage, it talks about how you place all the sins of the community on one of the goats, and that goat is taken out outside of the camp to carry off the sins of the people and to die out there, to be an atonement for our sin, for the community's sin. Now Isaiah is playing on this idea that Jesus becomes our scapegoat. Jesus becomes our lamb who is who takes the sins of the world away. Right? So what happens is God casts Satan out. God casts man out. And the Father casts the Son out. Remember what Jesus says on the cross as he's dying. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you cast me out? There's this sense of abandonment. Because God, or because Jesus has become unholy, profane. And wrong in the sense of bearing our sins, having our stuff put on him. Now, if you and I are willing to make the transition, and this is where judgment becomes something exciting and not something terrifying, is that when you and I make the transition to follow Jesus, to accept the cast out Son of God as the one who will deliver us into relationship with God of the universe, what happens is we become his children and judgment takes a different route. Judgment takes a different route. Judgment takes the route of discipline. And judgment takes the route of rebuke. And judgment takes the route of a healing and a rending. Let me read to you what the writer in Hebrews chapter 12 says to us. Hebrews chapter 12. Starting in verse 4. This is what the writer of Hebrews says about God's discipline to the community of God. 
In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood, and you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when He rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those He loves, and He punishes everyone He accepts as sons. And that passage goes on to talk about enduring hardship. But here's the reality. You and I do not like to be punished. You and I do not like to be rebuked. We do not like to be judged. And yet, when you read the phrase that Jesus will return and to judge the living and the dead, as you think about judgment, I want you to understand that there is a judgment going on now, and that is the judgment that you should be happy that you are part of instead of the final judgment that will cast you out if you have not embraced the present discipline of God. And so your life circumstances, as you pursue running away from sin, as you pursue dealing with the brokenness in your heart and the selfishness and the greed, as you wrestle with those things, the punishment of God comes on you, the discipline of God, and what the writer is saying is don't reject it, embrace it, because it's evidence that you're being loved by God. And so judgment makes this shift from this terrifying thing of being cast out to actually being included within the kingdom of God. Judgment is an, is, this becomes this indication of inclusion. Now, I would be remiss if I did not talk about Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 31, about the sheep and the goats. Because it is a picture that Jesus gives to us in Matthew about what judgment will look like. And there's some interesting things that Jesus says, but I want to read to you. It's a little bit long, but it's the story of Jesus judging the nations. And I want to just offer you some ideas about what judgment looks like. And what, when we read that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead, how that ought to inspire us and engage us. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, Son of Man would be Jesus, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. And the nations will gather before Him, and He will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on on His right and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did you see, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, but whatever you did for all of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry and gave You gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. 
You also will answer, Lord, when did you, we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger in, or needing clothes or sick in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous for eternal life. Let me just quickly talk about the bottom here. Punishment. There is a consequence to the rejection of the pursuit of the holiness of God. You see, if you and I are willing to embrace the cast out Jesus and accept the sacrifice he made for our life and the taking on of our sins and the resurrection and the hope that that gives us, if we embrace that, what we're embracing is a pursuit of holiness. And when we pursue holiness, what we are pursuing is sanity. And when we are we pursue holiness, we're pursuing rightness. And when we pursue holiness, we are pursuing the sacred. And here is the interesting thing. When you and I set our minds to holiness, those who are in need get helped. It is a byproduct, or what scriptures might call fruit. It is a byproduct of the pursuit of holiness. When you are sane, you can offer things. Now, it's interesting in this parable that the first thing it addresses is that God is calling the nations as sheep and goats, and he begins to separate them. And since all of you are not shepherds, you do not know that goats and sheep are, you know, they're, they're herded together, and then you have to separate them. But from far off, the shepherd has a difficulty telling which are sheep and which are goats because they all are dirty and kind of look the same. So there's this separation. And what's interesting about this is even though the condemnation or the, the judgment that happens here seems to at some level be individual, it's also communal. And that what we are doing, called to do is to embrace holiness as a community and pursue it as a community. And as we pursue it as a community, there is a result. And so you could interpret this, well, what Jesus wants is us to do a bunch of good things, but no, I, you can't, that doesn't fit into the rest of the context of Scripture. What I think Jesus is saying here is that there is a priority and do not think that you can somehow pursue the profanity and insanity and wrongness of the world and somehow also be godly and, pers- and, and take care of people and see the world as broken at any level. Like the only way that you're going to find yourself in the kingdom of God is if you pursue the things of God. So don't fool yourself. Do not fool yourself. That's what he's saying. Which, when you read, and I believe that he's going to return to judge the living and the dead, you should be excited. Because you are going to be in a place, if you're a follower of Jesus, where you are in the kingdom, prepared for you from the beginning of time. And if you choose to pursue a complete unholy life, what you're going to hear God say is, there was the needy all around you, and all you cared about was you. And you have brought this disappearance of the image of God on yourself. And judgment will simply be to have that image completely removed from you so that there is no sanity in you. There is no sacred in you. And there is no right in you. And it will be hell.
Now, I just want to offer you a response to judgment. Because Paul believes that the idea that Jesus is going to return to judge the living and the dead should inspire and, and also encourage us to be followers of Jesus to the fullness. In a letter to Timothy, his disciple, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul offers him, Timothy this challenge. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, that would be King Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. So basically, in view of the Apostles' Creed, and in particular the judgment, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, encourage, with great patience and careful instruction. I want to pause there. The result, this charge coming from the judgment, is that Timothy is to exert himself, offer his gift to its fullness, and to be ready that there's this preparedness, there's this vigilance, there's this intention in response to judgment. And the reason to do this is for the time will come when men will put, not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them numbers of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. That there is this sense that, that, that there will be a drifting away from what is holy. But the reality is, Paul, I suspect, knows this as he's write this, writing this, that his time is full of this, and his communities are full of this. And so he's encouraging Timothy to be ready for the reality that is. Verse 4, and then continues, They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do not work. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. It's like, okay, what's going to happen in the turbulence of things is that as you are offering your gifts, to the insanity of people, you are going to be tempted to join them in their insanity. You are going to be tempted to join them in their insanity. You're not going to be able to keep your head. You need to keep your head. You need to endure the hardship that's going to come against you as the insanity of this world presses in on you and of the people around you. And then he goes on to verse 6 to say, For I am already poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on the day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. So Paul says, you are in the process of being poured out. I have been poured out. And I am looking forward to embracing a particular kind of judgment from God, which is to put on the crown of righteousness. And so scripture is clear that there are two kinds of judgment. One is a judgment of have you pursued holiness? Have you embraced the cast out Jesus? Or have you just run from the, from holiness and have begun the process of stripping the image of God from the very person that you are there's that judgment 
But then there also is the judgment of those of us who have chosen to pursue holiness and intimacy with God. And what Paul is talking about here is he's saying to all of us, not just somebody who's teaching Timothy, but all of us, you must with vigilance exercise your gift. With a practice. If you have the gift of mercy, you have to practice this gift of mercy. If you have the, if whatever God has given you, talents, gifts, as he's, as you were burdened into the kingdom, when you embraced the cast out Jesus, whatever's been given to you, you must practice and engage the community because your gift is essential to the insanity that is present in our culture. And there's a temptation, if we don't practice, not to keep our head in the midst of all of those things. But when we do that, what happens is we develop an intimacy with God that's deep and rich and that when we come face to face with God and the crown of righteousness is put on our heads, there is an intimacy that we've already been working on and it is rewarded. And so Paul is saying, work on your relationship with God because there's a reward in that, which is true in all relationships. You don't work on the relationship, there's no intimacy. And yet what so many of us are driven to is to run away from the work to think that somehow we can just taste the insanity by falling into evenings with movies and Netflix and Hulu and falling into food addictions and falling into our anger and falling. We, we, we are sliding. This is why we say the Apostles' Creed. We try to bring ourselves back. But there is this pursuit of holiness and the way you pursue sanity the way you pursue rightness, the way you pursue the sacred is to pour out your gifts into the community. Now, I want to talk about this idea of being cast out for a second because here's the thing. You and I all are those in need. You and I both have cast out and victory in our life. We hold them in parallel. We're all... In this, we all understand what it means to be on the outside. We all are the weaker person who needs to be clothed. But what happens is so many of us are lonely because we, and some of us are numb to reality because we aren't in touch with being cast out. So we're not in touch with really what Jesus had offers us. And we are not aware of anybody else's need because we're about ourselves. Pursuing holiness is actually a willingness to reflect on our cast-out experiences, to be able to identify with them and see them in other people's lives and then care for them with the gifts that God has given us. So let me give you a quick example in closing of a story of being cast out in my life. It's just an easy one. You've all heard it. Um, but it's one that I go back to because it helps me stay alive to where you're at and where I'm at and what I need. Um, and what I have to offer. But you know, my freshman year of high school, I played on a basketball team that had a bunch of college players on it, and we were undefeated. Okay, we like to say we were undefeated. We lost one game, and we just didn't really play. We just kind of, we, we, it's one of those games where you're like, we're so better than this team, we don't really care. It, we just, you know, take the day off. We lost. When we played them again, we beat them by, by 30, I think. We like crushed them because we were just upset for losing. But anyway, in that, on that team, I was definitely cast out. I was a 13th man on a team of 13. I got subbed in to shoot technical fouls. That's how I scored all my points. 
I was made fun of and teased. I was the one who didn't get to be part, really. I was on the outside. And I can remember just just how terrifying every day it was to go to practice. And yet I still went, and I experienced that being cast out, that rejection, that being pushed out of the community. And when I sit in that, and when I remember that as a freshman, I understand what Jesus did on the cross. I understand what Jesus did on the cross. And I understand that in that me, there's a hole there, a loneliness. It, it, and as I look at that, and as I remember it, what I realize is that Jesus was cast out with me. And not only was Jesus cast out with me, like he can identify with me, he's present in that, but he's calling me to be present like he is in my relationship there with you. The whole thing that Jesus is saying in Matthew 27 about caring for people is really being able to see the places that people are cast out and rejected and speak into it and be present into it and offer physical and emotional and spiritual healing through Jesus Christ by introducing people over and over again to Jesus who was cast out for us. And so when we think about the judgment of the living and the dead, we should be excited because it is a time if we're people who are pursuing holiness and embracing Jesus, it's going to be a time of great intimacy and reward. And so when we say it, it's not something we should be afraid of. It's something we should be excited about. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for my community. Thank you for speaking through me. Thank you for being a good God. And I ask that you would take these words and that you would bless my community with them. Amen.